Take your copy of God's Word, the Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Again, reminding you, this is part of the beauty of the wisdom of having a divine author, that when the Spirit inspired this, God wrote it years ago, He's so wise that He can write with multiple audiences in His mind at the exact same time. So the original readers, all Christians who have come since, but even us today, so that we can comfortably say, this is God's Word for you today. Hear of the Lord in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to, a, said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you speak to us in the reading of your scriptures. You wrote this. It's true a long time ago. It's true today. It will be true long after we're dead. And it will be true when we're raised with Christ. Would you give light and life to our hearts? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It's always intriguing to me, I guess, uh, two parts of my job description, parts that maybe you don't know, maybe you do. I study the Bible for a living. That's one aspect of what I do. The other is I study people for a living. Uh, Study people probably, hopefully, just as much as I study the Bible or almost as much. One of the things that amazes me uh, is the variety of pain responses that people give. Like when you experience something painful, 
um, the, the variety, the creativity of responses that we have. Uh, and I, I think the other thing that surprises me is uh, the irrationality of them, which is always so fun. Maybe you might remember when you were a kid, and maybe you did this, you were a hooligan like I was, but you rode your bike or your scooter uh, like an insane person throughout the neighborhood. That's what all the kids in my neighborhood did growing up. We all had bikes or scooters and proceeded to ride them around the neighborhood for hours and hours and hours on end. That was our activity. It was great fun. Eventually building ramps in people's front yards with their permission, and we'd go riding through you know, the neighborhood and cut through somebody's yard, hit a ramp, and go flying and have a great time. Uh, and invariably, it would be, you know, once a week or two or whatever, one of the guys in the group would have some miserably horrible wreck, right? Misjudged the ramp, misjudged their landing, the bike doesn't work, whatever. My most famous one, I was going over the top and the scooter's kickstand caught on the top of the ramp. So the scooter stopped, but I didn't and proceeded to go flying head over heels over the handlebars until I hit the dirt, mashed my face up, all kinds of good blood everywhere. It was awesome. You know, the amazing thing is that immediately in that moment, what's the first decision that every child has? Well, I will never ride a bike again, right? I'm done with it. If this is what it feels like to ride a bike, if this is what it feels like to have a scooter, if this is what it feels like to have fun, well, I know I'm not interested in fun anymore because it hurts. And of course, eventually you get to see uh, it wears away and it gnaws at the child to have all of their friends playing and they find their way out to their bike again and three weeks later they're bleeding again in the dirt having a great time. The interesting thing is as adults though, we have that same sort of response with great frequency where we encounter pain and it kind of like short circuits our brain and it's like we suddenly all become stupid. It's amazing. We don't really tend to process it that very well. Oftentimes making nonsensical decisions, oftentimes making decisions that are just downright harmful for us because the pain just kind of blinds us to the good things in our lives. This passage, I think, is a wonderful corrective. Here we've seen not that Jesus has fallen off his bike and is, you know, having to figure out if he wants to have fun again. Here we see the Lord Christ staring down the barrel of the wrath of God. He knows what he's walking into. He's studied the Scriptures better than any person that has gone before. He knows more about God from the Bible than any human that has ever lived. He knows what is about to happen. He's just told them in the previous kind of two sections in your ESV, the way it's divided, that he's about to die. It's not really a negotiable. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. He also knows that when he dies, it will be an unjust death. He does not deserve it, but instead, he knows he's going to the cross. He's already told them that, but he's going to the cross for their redemption, and I, I can't imagine the, the kind of, uh, I don't want to go, that you would have to feel. Knowing crucifixion, the worst way to die that I think man has probably ever conceived, is certainly one of, and that being the easiest thing he would do that day. The wrath of God being infinitely worse than the worst way designed for a human body to die. This is a man who is reflecting upon the most intense and miserable pain a human can conceive of. 
Right? I'm thinking about the wrath of God upsets me, but it's in ignorance. I don't even know that much about it. I know it's horrible. I know He's powerful. I know He's creative. Christ, on the other hand, knows all that humanity can know. He studied the Bible fully. And yet, you know the rest of the story, He walks into it intentionally, He walks into his suffering and death willfully. He walks into his suffering and death in charge. A man in control of the situation constantly shaping his circumstances so that he would be victorious. Weirdly enough, being victorious by going to the cross. I think it's important, though, that we contemplate just looking at this, what he's instructing us as how we process. We being humans living in a fallen world, having a sin nature, we will not uh, live a life that is exempt from pain. If you're little, I hate to break it to you, but that's what you have in store should the Lord give you a long life. And by long, I mean past the end of next week. It's what happens, it's what it means to be human in the world in which we live currently, that pain will indeed happen. And how are we supposed to deal with that? Well, first, I think it's intriguing. Uh, Jesus has just kind of left, at this point, one of the kind of high points of the year in a religious worship service. They've just had the Passover meal. It's their kind of pinnacle climactic feast where they think about God's salvation. He's just been teaching them for who knows how many hours. It's probably quite late at night, thus the disciples constantly falling asleep. Best guess, it's probably 11 o'clock, midnight, something like that. It's best we can take a stab at it, which for them is much later than 11 o'clock or midnight for us. They don't have electricity the way that we do. And it's intriguing that even though he's leaving functionally what is their most important worship service. When it comes time for him to contemplate, how am I supposed to deal with the pain at hand? How am I supposed to be ready for my death tomorrow? How am I supposed to be ready for my betrayal in just a few moments? How am I supposed to be ready for the horrible, horrible things that await that he himself is in charge of? I find it just wonderfully humble that the Lord of life himself recognizes that in the midst of pain, prayer is a safe haven. I mean, he he is the one who has spoken creation into existence. He stepped inside time and space since that point. He's the one who is in charge. He's the Lord of life. You remember the way that Matthew has been highlighting this is that Jesus has been navigating his way to the cross on purpose. It's not by accident. He has not been outmaneuvered by his enemies. It's planned out. It's well scripted. But interestingly, that even the Messiah, even the Son of God, that when it comes time to confront the wrath of God, confront the difficulty that's in front of him, to confront his own death. A prayer is designed to be a safe haven, designed to be a rest, designed to be a home, designed to be a place of peace, designed to be a source of strength. Again, I suspect that this is one of those great truths that we know intellectually. 
But in the moment, we just, it's like we kind of spontaneously have this amnesia. Oh, my life is hard. I'm about to do something that's difficult. I'm dealing with pain that I don't like. My heart hurts. I'm, I'm sad. I'm discouraged. I'm overwhelmed. I'm weary. It's like our brain short circuits. You got smoke that comes out of our ears, and we forget. Oh, yeah, by the way, prayer is designed for this. Prayer is designed for that specific circumstance to take it to the very throne room of heaven to plead with the Lord. And I, I do, I'm going to be honest, the nature of the human heart, it's so easy for us to say, well, I know that that's there for the big stuff. But really, does the Lord care about things as small as this? Or, just say that I know the Lord does that in the small stuff. But does He really care in things as big as this? Or to say, I know the Lord cares for other people in their prayers, but does he care for even me? And you realize what we're doing, all of these are just self-justifications for reasons why not to pray. Reasons why we don't have to go to the Lord. Reasons why it's better to not talk to him about our problems. And it's intriguing, too, because for many of us in the room, we're parents, we understand. When our kids are having a hard time, there's nothing we want more than for them to come sit down with us and tell us about their hard times. We long for that. And yet, when it comes time for us to interact with our Father, we don't. It's intriguing. I find that just so interesting. All right, so frame out, big picture point. One, you probably already know, you figured would come from passages like this, prayers designed as a safe haven in the midst of suffering. Um, okay, fair enough, that's your standard Sunday school point, but the interesting thing, I think, is then how Jesus immediately implements it. Jesus then takes them to a place called Gethsemane. He's gone out of town. We actually pretty much have a fairly good idea of which kind of door he's gone out, which path he's followed. It splits into a couple of different ways. He's taken one. And interestingly, what has he done? Does he go by himself to meet with the Lord's sweet hour of prayer with himself and his father? No, instead he brings buddies with him. In fact, actually, he brings one buddy that he's just had an argument with. Said some pretty difficult things to him. Peter. Peter's just been told that he's going to betray Jesus. I'm like, no, I'll never do that. I'm, like, I'm fairly certain you will. No, I'll never do that. Well, okay, let's go pray. Takes him with him because it's intriguing to see that you, Jesus is really kind of laying out a second idea here for us. Is that we're not designed to operate alone. You remember how humanity is created. We're designed in God's image. We are created in our very kind of essence. What makes us human is designed to showcase who God is. And at the very core of who God is is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. He is always in relationship. The Father's never not in relationship. The Spirit's never not in relationship. The Son is never not in relationship. God is constantly in relationship. But interestingly, the second that we begin to deal with great pain, it's like, again, our brain short circuits, and we want to isolate ourselves. 
To say, I know God has made humanity to be built in relationship, to be knit in relationship, but instead, my pain is such I can't be with people. I need to be by myself. Which is interesting. That's why we read that kind of first Kings passage earlier with the prophet Elijah. He gets by himself. He doesn't have a corrective to his own thoughts, even though he's just had this kind of great victory in ministry. He's suddenly persecuted, and there's no one to kind of talk him out of it. There's no voice in his ear saying, hey, brother, it's going to be all right, man. Calm down. Instead, that escalates quickly in his head, and he ends up with this kind of pity party of like, I want to die. Brother, you just defeated the forces of evil. You've done more miracles than almost anybody else in the Bible at this point. Like, cool your jets, man. You're fine. Just be at peace. Yeah, Jezebel's after you. She's not going to win. You know this. Pity party, even lying to God, I'm all by myself. And it's easy to kind of, again, poke fun at the prophet because he's written in Scripture and it's good for us to see. But friends, we, we say these things all the time. People don't understand how bad it hurts. Excuse my grumpiness. My feistiness. Constantly working to keep others out instead of intentionally bringing others and I do think it says a lot in verse 37 that Jesus intentionally takes the man who's about to betray him to go pray. We're not designed to be alone. We're not designed to be isolated. We're not designed in God's very image to exist like a man on an island. I've been using this illustration In this church for 14 years, I will continue to use it until the Lord takes me home, I hope. Growing up as a kid, watching all the nature shows, you know the illustration. Some of you have been here a long time. You probably tell it better than I can. But watching the lions hunting the gazelles, right? All the gazelles in a herd going this way, running from the lions, it's fine until the one gazelle makes the wrong turn and turns by itself. Even as a young kid, five, six, seven years old, that was when I realized the lions understood that was lunch. They can't attack a herd of gazelles. They can't beat a herd of gazelles. They cannot bring down a herd of gazelles. They can't even get one if they're in the midst of a herd. But the second the one turns by itself, the second the herd goes left and one gazelle goes right, man, that one's lunch. That's the point where you can, I mean, they may make it out by a miracle of some kind, but you know they're going to lose. And I think it's interesting that Jesus himself is instructing us in that fashion. He's having to deal with the most difficult thing he's going to confront. He knows it's coming. It's not an unknown entity to him. And he even understands it's time to be with people, not away from them. Because the church is designed to be an encouragement. The church is designed to strengthen and to build up. The church is designed to be in relationship. Now, I do think it's interesting he doesn't bring everybody in his ministry with him. He doesn't take the entire crowd of the triumphal entry. It's not, you know, 38,000 folks with him. He's got a handful. But making sure that we're not isolated and alone. Some of you I'm just going to lovingly encourage in very gentle rebuke. When you hurt friends, please do not be alone. Please do not be alone. Please do not 
Go about your business thinking I can hide it on the inside and I'll be all right. In doing so, what you are enabling is for the herd to turn left and for you to go right. And then you're lying lunch and nobody likes that. Jesus brings them with him. Kind of leaves them a little way into the olive grove and steps a stone's throw further or so and begins to go into prayer. And what a, a, an amazing and horrible and gruesome and real and beautiful prayer it is. And verse 38 even tells them what he's going to do. My soul's very sorrowful, even to the point of death. He's not being melodramatic. He's going to be dead in less than 24 hours. Not going to stay that way for very long, but still. Remain here, watch it with me, be on lookout, guard me and keep me, pray for me. Verse 39, he goes, like I said, a stone's throw further into the olive grove and begins to pray. And this prayer is emotionally grueling. My father, beginning with intimacy, and this is a term that at the time is so incredible. It's, it's a category that's in the Old Testament, but it's not the dominant category of th- how to think of God. That category does exist for the Jews, but it's not the overwhelming category. It's how we're taught to think about God constantly because how Jesus taught us to pray in Luke 11 and other places is not how it was at the time when he's ministering. He begins instead with this profoundly intimate language with God, My father, if it's possible, why would he even be saying that in his humanity? He doesn't know everything even in his humanity that he does in his divinity. If there's another way, I'd want to do it. You can understand this. This is a man, fully man, getting ready to undergo the totality of the wrath of God. Only a fool would consider the wrath of God to be something minor something laughable or small. An infinitely powerful God with infinitely perfect justice and infinite creativity. Yeah, his wrath is not something to be trifled with. Father, if there's another way, if there's another path to victory that does not require me to go to the cross, I'm all in. But if there's not, not as I will, but as you will. There's a lesson here in the, in the sense of even in the midst of difficulty, uh, I think a lot of times we forget that submission, it's not a passive thing. It's not just kind of, oh yeah, we're just going to do whatever God says, kind of passively thinking through. But no, it's submission, and I love the Lord Jesus even illustrating, it is an active thing. It's a thing that has to be intentionally cultivated. It's a thing that you have to put voice to. It's a thing that you have to intentionally structure your heart and instruct your heart to do that. No, it's not my way. I'm not the one that needs to be in charge of this. My decision-making skills are often quite suspect. No, God's are perfect. I'm going to go His way. I'm going to do what He wishes. Instead, shape me according to your will not mine. It's amazing to think, too, this is a prayer that's being prayed from a man who has never sinned. He's never made a mistake. I mean, I would think it'd be a pretty good idea to say his will is pretty good. 
right? He's never messed up, doesn't have a fallen nature, doesn't have lingering corruption like you or me. His will's perfect, and instead even he is saying, not my will, but yours. And friends, again, I, I suspect for many of us, when we get in difficulty, we're not so dishonest or unsophisticated as to say this out loud. But this is the kind of thing I think that kind of lingers in the back of our minds. It kind of chews around in the back of our heart and just kind of gnaws its way in to think that, you know what, I think maybe God maybe made a mistake here. I mean, I know he's good and all, and I know he's wise and all, but maybe that's kind of for other people. It's just not for me. You know, maybe I just don't really like the idea of having to confront what I'm having to confront, what I'm having to do what I have to do. It hurts. I don't want to have to do it again. But you know what? The Lord knows what He's doing. It's His will. If it's His perfect will, instead we need to be laboring not to fight against it, not to resist against it, not to be grumpy or cantankerous, but by the power of the Spirit, the redemption of Christ Jesus, to actively submit ourselves. And you realize that if that's going to be the case, that means that there are going to be times where the Lord leads you into circumstances that are in the short term very bad for you. This is a thing that I I say, American culture, we really miss. We've talked about this a lot over the years, but we say, you know, one of the big kind of things that are foundational, the ideas that's foundational to the American understanding of ethics, what's right and wrong, is the idea of if it hurts somebody, it can't be true. It can't be right. That's why you're currently ending up kind of in this moment of American culture, American ethics, where we're saying, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you can do whatever you want to do. Now we're starting to realize it didn't kind of entirely work because the things that I want to do might actually inconvenience you. And, well, that's hard where we kind of run against each other. And what we haven't realized is that's, in many cases, kind of infected our theology where we begin to say, well, if you can do whatever you want to do unless it hurts somebody, if it hurts me, it can't be from God. This is painful. That that can't be a gift from the Lord. This is miserable. That can't be a gift from the Lord. It can't be God's doing. The interesting thing here is what is Christ presuming in his prayer? It's God's will for him to be tortured. It's God's will for him to undergo the wrath of God on the cross. And it's God's will for him to die in the next 24 hours or so. That's Christ's presumption is that the Father's will is for him to be miserable beyond death in the next day. And again, I would just lovingly encourage you, be careful of this type of thinking, to say that God only has good things for me. Well, yeah, in the long run. And in fact, actually, he uses terrible things for very good ends. Romans 8 tells us that. But that doesn't mean he doesn't take you into circumstances that hurt your feelings and perhaps even hurt your body so that you're made whole in the end. There's an active submission here from the Lord Jesus that is a profound trust in who God is, but again, that's not where he stops. He continues to instruct his disciples. I love this. He spends this moment in prayer, submitting himself to the Father, 
If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Interestingly, we find out from Luke that prayer is answered at some point in the night. You probably don't remember this part. I don't know why it just doesn't stick in our minds, but the father sends an angel to him immediately and ministers to him at some point in the night. Likely because the disciples are asleep, they don't catch it. Right? This amazing creature of fire and eyes descends upon the Lord Christ to minister to him. And the disciples are totally out. They don't get it because they've missed an opportunity. Being sound asleep. He goes back to the disciples, and you can understand they've had a busy week. I mean, it started with a triumphal entry. It's been insane. They've uh, been part of Jesus cleansing the temple. They've at this point had at least four or five hours of straight instruction. We find out from uh, John, much less a massive meal. Their bellies are full. Their ears are tired. Their backs and bottoms are weary from sitting for so long. It's the middle of the night. You can understand they're exhausted, and they kind of sit and nod, and they're out. And it's interesting, Jesus could have walked in and said, Peter, I told you. I told you you'd betray me. You literally, the next thing you did, didn't wait very long. Can't even sit up with me and watch and pray. Instead, it's interesting how Christ's interaction with them throughout this is amazingly tender. Recognizing these are gonna be some of the last words that these men hear from their Savior. And he's so tender, last words prior to his death. He's so tender to them. Couldn't you just wait and watch for an hour? One hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then this profound statement, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love this. This sentence is so tender. He's acknowledging their frailty. He's not screaming at them. He's not yelling at them. He's not, how dare you betray me? He could have. He would have been right and just. He's not ridiculing them or shaming them. In fact, actually, he's offering explanation. Why is it that you can't stay awake? Well, your hearts want to, but guess what, guys? Your bodies are tired. You're humans. Your body's weary. It's exhausted. It breaks down. It's broken in some fashion. You're beat. In fact, actually, uh, you know, they fall asleep, he wakes them up, he goes away and prays for a bit, he comes back, they've fallen asleep. Matthew doesn't record it, but we find out one of the other gospels, he again, encouraged them, exhorts them to awake and pray, pray for their own hearts and such. He goes away and prays for the third time, comes back and they're out cold. And you get this moment in 45, and the translation here is hard. The, the Greek on this one is extremely complicated. Uh, I, I suspect probably the King James actually has this one correct. Um, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. All right, so here's the challenge. Sleep and take your rest are present active commands. And the later on is a word that could mean later on or it could mean like right now, but then also later on. So it's a little bit kind of vague as to what he's actually meaning here. I I suspect what he's actually saying is, guys, enjoy your sleep. You're gonna need it. Take every last minute you can get because the betrayer is at hand. Rise, it's time to wake up. Here comes Judas. Again, he could have blasted them. They've disobeyed his commands at this point three times. I mean, as a parent, if your kids had disobeyed you three times in the space of two hours for the serious, serious commands, we probably wouldn't be too happy with them. 
And yet interestingly, what does he do with them? He gives them the last few moments of sleep that he can, that they can possibly get, and wakes them up just in time for the action to start. You see, what we have here is a man who is so filled with the Spirit, a man who is so in connection with his Father that is displaying righteousness in a way that we never will. This side of heaven. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God, very God himself. But in doing so, displays perfect righteousness. And I love the fact that even in this moment, you get to see him at his absolute most broken This is the part where in one of the other Gospels it's recorded that his prayer life is so aggressive, it's so emotional, it's so broken that his, his capillaries are bursting and blood is coming out of his skin. That's really traumatic. And I've only known that one time where a friend of mine had a situation like that happen and it was because she had gotten food poisoning so violently that she had burst the capillaries in her eyes and her eyes started bleeding. That is trauma, friends. That's what this man's prayer life is. Our Savior's prayer life is so intensely traumatic at this point. He knows what the wrath of God is. And even in the midst of contemplating God's wrath and his impending death, he is tender and kind and compassionate and loving to his people. And the amazing thing to me is how quickly we forget that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that whatever difficulty you're in, he has not forgotten you. He has not ceased to be tender toward you. He has not stopped praying for you. In fact, he has not stopped caring for you. He has not, he will not, and he cannot let you go. And for those of you that aren't suffering, I just lovingly encourage it. It's important that you drill these ideas into your head now. Because while you're not suffering now, maybe next week you will be. Or the week after, you never know. It sneaks up on you. You're never quite ready for it. So you prepare in the moments of happiness and joy and gladness so that when the moments of difficulty come, you're ready. And it is important that we fix in our minds that this is the good promise of the gospel. What Jesus accomplishes on the cross is that we are united with him forever and he cannot let us go. So that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's important you know you will never be alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the happy parts. We thank you for the sad parts. We thank you that Jesus is a man like us and a God unlike us and that he has redeemed for himself a people. Lord, we thank you that that redemption is freely offered, and we do ask that your spirit would increase our faith. For Christ's sake, amen.